0: would invite you to turn your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 through 25. If you uh, don't have a Bible, it's there printed for you in your insert. There's also Bibles back on this little table in the back. Um, I made a joke earlier about sickness and handshakes and such. Um, I, w- <laughs> I Really, we do need to pray for our community, and we will. There's just something just going, going wildfire. Um, we will during the Lord's Supper, just so you're aware, not do the common cup this morning. We have more trays and so our servers up here will be holding the tray just that God would uh, sustain us, and we do pray for those who are sick, um, my house included. Um, so we're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, and I want to use a little bit of reference for, to last week, and that may help us walk into this before we read it. Last week, we had sort of a different experience talking about how the, the, the feeling we should have in exile or... Outside of our our home we long for in glory, outside of the righteous home promised for those who are in Christ, the one that he's going to bring when he comes, we're supposed to conduct ourselves with fear in our time of exile. And that was a different focus for, I think, a lot of us of just the feeling of Christianity is fear, 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 love, hope, joy, peace with fear. And we leaned into that pretty heavily. What we didn't talk about was the beautiful benefit of fear. I want you to think about this with me for a second. Proverbs 1, verse 8, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What what in the world is the Scripture saying when there's a benefit to fear? Think of it this way. If I fear God, and so with my mind I focus on the rescue that He's promised, my heart starts to set itself on the law of God, which we saw that last week, when I realize I'm nothing close to the holiness He is, then I have to think more about His rescue and realize it's only by grace because I can't earn that rescue because I'm not a keeper of His law the way I ought to be. So it's a pathway to understand grace. And what does, what's the net result of a heart that is completely infused, if you will, or aware of God's love for us by grace alone? We're free to love. Love's the net result. Grace lived out looks like love. And that's where Peter goes. So there's a benefit of fearing God. I I no longer fear my circumstances, uh, Lord willing. I no longer fear people and what they might think of me if I don't look like them, act like them. Because I understand that God alone is the, the declarer of my identity, I'm free. What does freedom look like among those who are recipients of grace? It looks like love. And that's where Peter goes in this text. He's gonna take us from fear to love, and it's very obvious, it's very important. Another thing that may help you, I said this in the weekly email, so let me remind you, if, in case you didn't read it, but just to think of it with me this way. We didn't plan it, wish we could say we did, but we were in Habakkuk before the book of First Peter. The way the book of Habakkuk ends, the prophet Habakkuk, he's in exile in Babylon, and he understands by God's declaration to him, that days are about to get much, much worse. The Babylonians are coming. The city is going to fall apart. The people of God are going to be exiled and it's going to be ugly. It's going to be destructive. And he ends his book essentially saying, what if it never gets better? And some of you, that, that was the title of the sermon that Sunday I preached. What if the thing you're going through on this side of glory, it never gets better? And there were a lot of tears shed in this room in both services that Sunday. What if it doesn't get better? Let me read you the words of Habakkuk. He ends his book this way. Though the fig tree should not blossom, though fruit no longer be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off, no herd is in the stall. If everything is ravaged by war, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's how Habakkuk ends his book. What if it doesn't get any better? Now, Peter writes to exiles... That's how he starts the book. To those who are elect exiles, those whom God's chosen, you're going to be rejected by the world. This isn't your home. And Peter says something sort of similar, but you might say the inverse or the opposite of what Habakkuk says. Peter says it this way. While your external life in exile, what if it just gets worse? In your internal life by God's work, what if his good work never stops? Same sort of a thought. What if it never stops? the good work of God's imperishable seed planted in your heart causing you to grow into the likeness of Him who's your rescuer, what if it never stops ever eternally? Let's let the word imperishable mean imperishable. You are somewhere on a journey and as we'll look in a second, you may not be anywhere close to the lover of others and the lovers of God you should be. Nowhere close to the fearer of God that you know that you should be. But if His eternal if the, the imperishable seed of his word is planted in you, the scriptures are going to tell you and I today his good work will never, ever stop. That's like the conclusion of my sermon already given to you. I can't, I can't fathom the goodness of this message for God's people when we realize that outside of ourselves, the things we can't control may get worse and worse and worse. But may he comfort us, heart, soul, mind, that if we are the rescued, if we're the born again in Christ, His good work in us by His Word will never stop. Stand with me and let's hear Peter say it to us before we pray and move on. This is God's Word. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass the grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever and this word is the good news that was preached to you this is the word of God father we offer this prayer in hope that you'll never stop doing the good work by your word in us. You've planted the seed. Grow us forever into the likeness of him who is our rescuer. Would you help us to understand the beauty of this text? Would you apply it to our lives? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So it's a communal command. Love one another earnestly. As I shared with the children, the word earnestly there, uh, in a strained or a stretched way. Is what the word earnestly means. So again, it's the same Greek word that describes Jesus' earnest, strained prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Love one another that way, Peter says. So we have a transition from a vertical personal fear. Conduct yourself with fear in your time of exile to a communal, horizontal love. That's where Peter goes. From relationship with the rescuing father to relationship with other rescued exiles. Chosen... Recipients of God's grace. Here's what Edmund Clowney says. Believers in God are redeemed from their empty and guilty and futile past. So they're bound to their Lord, but also to one another. Bound to each other as co-recipients. Reminds me of 1 Peter 3, 7, which we'll look at in weeks to come. When Peter writes to husbands and wives, he says to husbands, you got to love your wife as an heir of the grace of life with you. You're co-heirs together. That's what he's saying here. You're bound together by grace. Interestingly, one of the things we need to see here is that uh, this is a command to love one another earnestly, but it's a supported command. And that's important. I want you to fathom with me how upside down our world may be, or it is. I mean, can love be commanded? I mean, is that fair? See, if we have a cultural belief that love is a feeling that we conjure up on our own, that's a pretty unfair thing to say to someone. Just, just love. Go do it. Well, I don't feel it. I don't, I don't like that person. I don't, I don't have the ability within me. Or sometimes if we define love as feeling and a person falls in love, it's almost like I got swept away by it. It started commanding me, if you will. The scriptures here command love, but it's a supported command. Here's what I mean by that, it's a love that comes to us. We've received it from our Redeemer by His grace and we're commanded to extend it to those around us as recipients of grace. Again, one commentator says, you know, love may be demonstrated by a hug or by a helping hand, but it's not transmitted that way. Communicated, maybe, not transmitted. For the believer, it's been born through the truth of the gospel. That's how love is transmitted. And since it's been transmitted to us, it's commanded to go out of us. Uh, the book of 1 John is, as we looked at not long ago, it's all about love. So let me read to you 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Just hear this similar description. And, and, and think about how Peter and John knew Jesus so intimately. And that they both go straight to love in their letters as a major theme of what they communicate as to what they learned from their Lord. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God. Wow, same language Peter used. Both walked with Jesus. Born again to love. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the wrath bearer or the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Another, chapter 5, verse 1 of 1 John, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. We won't go too much into it, but have you ever been in a church where people didn't have love for each other? It's awful. It's awful. Where some sort of authority structure or climbing a ladder or politics or history of the church or anything takes center stage to radical self-sacrificial love for one another. It's awful. It's the antithesis. Beloved, love one another. It's a supported command. All that God has given to us in Christ compels us to act like Christ is what we're being told here. So fear of God is the first command we looked at last week, then the next love of one another is what flows from it. So I want you to understand with me, verse 22 and 23, I think, show a support for the command to love God that is a summary of all we've looked at in the rest of the book. Let me try to explain that. That might have sounded too dense. Um, Notice that in verse 22, we we are told you know, we're to love one another earnestly, having purified yourself by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Do you see that? Love one another having purified yourself. In which section of the book has he already very, very deeply talked to us about obedience to the truth? Well, we just looked at it last week, verses um, 13 to 21. Be holy as I am holy. The law tells you to be holy. Obey the truth. Look like your rescuer. So when it says having purified yourself by obedience to the truth, I personally feel like it's a summary of verses 13 to 21 just restated in a simple way. If you get what that was about last week, it turns into a heart and a mind and a feeling of fearing God, but that looks like loving others. The word purified there, um, it's past tense, so having purified yourself or having consecrated yourself. So in other words, because you're already cleansed, love. You're not trying to become cleansed. You're not trying to love as a do-gooder. You have been made right by God's cleansing work, so love. But interestingly enough, that that sounds passive, right? Past tense, at least. But it's an active verb, almost like go consecrate yourself. Consecrate unto obedience. Point is, obedience produces love. Truth and love align. Truth produces love. Edmund Clowney, again, says this, Love and truth, which are so often set at odds in contemporary Christianity, they are bound together by Peter. Love and truth go hand in hand. I'll say more about this later, but that means may we not be satisfied with any definition of love. that looks like just affirming what everybody believes. Just love by just don't disrupt anything. Just be tolerant. Yes, love includes a toleration of those who are totally different than you, that look different than you, that speak different than you, that may believe you love them, but you don't necessarily love what they love. That's not love. Not according to Christ. Because if, if that were love, he would have come and said, just keep loving yourself. He didn't. He said, it's going to kill you. I came to rescue you from that. So love can't just be affirm what you already feel you love. Truth and love go hand in hand. So what is this obedience to the truth? Well, just I'll say it briefly. I think it includes both an understanding of justification and sanctification. In other words, the truth of the gospel is that I have been made to be holy like my holy creator because of the sin through all history from Adam and Eve first, but I I, I actually sin. In light of their original sin, I am a sinner. I violate the holiness of God. I can't stop it. I can't just fix myself. Therefore, I must be declared righteous by some sort of righteousness from outside of myself. And in the gospel, we've been declared righteous in Christ. That's our justification. So Paul says in Philippians 3, that on that day when I stand before God, I don't want to be standing there with my own righteousness saying, I made good progress, God. Aren't you pleased with me? No, I want to stand there and have God look at me and say, that I'm righteous with the righteousness from God, Jesus' own righteousness, and that's how he sees me. Obedience to the truth of the gospel is, is, is recognizing that Christ's righteousness is the only obedience by which you or I will ever be found righteous. But that doesn't mean we abuse grace, which is what we saw last week. We're called to be growing. The work of his spirit in us is to conform us to his image. So Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13 talks about working our salvation out with fear and trembling Because God's at work in us, I want to conform to the holiness of the God that I realize that He is, that I'm nothing like. But if I'm not progressing in it, I should question whether or not His Spirit's in me and I'm justified at all. So it's it's the act of justification by God's grace has got to be included here in obedience to the truth of the gospel. But also my internal growth and sanctification has to be included here because I've been called to be holy as He is holy. And I should care because I've been born again to care. So it's all kind of encapsulated here. Because you've purified yourself by obedience to the truth, it should look like love. The second modifier is in verse 23. Because you're born again, you should love. Notice, that encapsulates all of verses 1 through 12. It's amazing how the language is just repeating what he's already said in deeper ways, if you will. Notice there in verse 23 how we are linking to the very first part of the chapter He'll be, Peter basically goes from imperishable inheritance, right? The imperishable inheritance kept in heaven for you. Now he's going to talk about an imperishable seed of the word planted in you. So that's an amazing repeat of terms. He, he's, go, he's going to go from born again to a living hope to now talking about the living word that's put in you. So we have repeat of terms here. We are alive with this imperishable work of God who's keeping us for an imperishable inheritance. And so the thought of a seed being planted in us is back to the born-again language of human procreation. That there's, there's a seed that's been put in us and it grows. It grows. It creates life. And the seed that's put in us is the Word of God, which is the Gospel. And so all through the Bible, when you look at the Word of God, it has creative properties. It has creative properties. God spoke and it was out of nothing. Jesus Christ, the one of whom creation happened, He is called... The word in John chapter 1. The word in the flesh. And when he spoke, things happened. Lazarus rose up from the grave. The invalid was healed after 38 years. He just spoke. No other formula. Just speaking that same living, abiding word has been put in us, Peter says. So here's essentially what he's saying. If, If you are born again and you are walking after the obedience to the truth of God's word... That that should not just look like intellectual assent to the things that you've been taught. This is where I think the church gets it wrong or has at times just, we want to discuss with others what we know and we assume that that is the essence of all of Christianity or something. I'm growing in my knowledge, therefore, let me tell you what I know. And that's not at all where Peter goes here. He actually says, no, if you're growing in knowledge of the truth and you understand the gospel, you should experience a burning inside of you. That's what Jesus says in Luke 24. Remember, he walked with those who had uh, thought that he wasn't, they had thought he was the Messiah. And then he died and they were heartbroken. and He comes alongside of them and he, he says, why are you sad? And they said, well, we thought that Jesus was the Messiah and they don't realize it's him. And he opens the scripture for them, the Moses, the law, the prophets. He explains who it is and they say, our hearts were burning inside of us. What were their hearts, what's the net result of the burning? Were they supposed to just walk around and tell everybody all that they knew? No, the burning produces a transformation of life because it's true. He actually was who he said he was. It's greater than we can imagine. So maybe you've heard it this way. Um, You ever heard of the cage stage for Christians? We've been in membership meetings, even with some of you here in the church, that said, when I first started grasping that the Bible tells me God is absolutely sovereign and that I can't control myself, I can't save myself, I got so excited to be like a prophet of reformed theology, grace-centered theology, like I went through the cage stage just lock me up because I wanted to go talk to everybody I'd known and tell them what the Bible actually says about God's sovereignty. And I want to tell them that I was dead in my trespasses and sins, that I'm not afraid of the word election anymore, that grace is grace is grace. And but by the grace, I'm not, I'm not a Christian. And so I went through the cage stage where all I wanted to do is debate everybody. There should never be a cage stage. What's the only stage that should happen for somebody who grasps the grace of the gospel? Not debates about knowledge, but radical, radical love of one another because we've been such a recipient of his love. And that's where Peter goes. The burning inside of you when you grasp the scriptures have said, all that they've said about your salvation should look like two things, fear of God and love of others, and they go hand in hand. Last Lord's Day, um, maybe one of the harder applications in my life, maybe yours as well, was this thought that Some of us have lived many years in our life in the church as total abusers of God's grace, cheapening His grace. Because I know I'm forgiven by grace. I just live without fear of Him. I just sin because I can. And then I say sorry and I live in His mercy and I just live this fearless life of faith. And that was our application last week of may it never be. This week... Maybe a similar thought could be said. How many of you here in Christ, in the church, would say, I don't look like a great lover of people? I don't. Here's what's even scarier. Lack of fear of God and secret abusiveness in sin. Abusing His grace is often the same person who doesn't love others very well at all. That's where Peter goes here. if my soul has been purified by obedience and even the credited obedience of Jesus, if I've been born again to a living hope, I should have this contorted angst every single day to love radically anybody that God puts in my path. To forgive 70 times, 7 times, those who get on my nerves. And that's what we should be known by. John chapter 13. They'll know you're my disciples by your love. So, a, we, we have a radical security, an inheritance kept in heaven for us who by God's spirit are being guarded and kept now. We've got a radical security and, and we should have a grounded ethic because we have been studying his holy law to be conforming to the one who's rescued us. What does that look like if you combine those two things, a radical security and a focus on his holiness? It should look like love because we, we, know, we know we're nothing like his holiness so we depend on his grace which just makes us more loving. So what is love? If we're to live in love, what is love? Well, Wilson in his commentary says this, love is a terribly debased term today. It's almost beyond rescue as a description of the good news of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. We must recover an understanding and a practice of love. So let's talk for a real quick second. What, what, let's talk about what love is not. Love is not even close to These are my words, so I'm going to try to make them terse and quick, but I hope you'll understand with me that while love can include pleasure and sensory blessing because we've been made to experience those things, love is nothing close to physical sensory pleasure as a thing. It can include it. Love is not a want to receive pleasure from things that make us happy. Love is nothing close to being needed by someone or needing someone. Because I need you, therefore I love you because you, feel my, you meet my need. Love is not acceptance or affirmation. I am supposed to make you feel good about what you feel, and if I do that, that means I love you. It, that can't be a biblical definition of love. It's not how we were loved by God in Christ. Love's not those things in in and of themselves. Love can't also be merely a warm, fuzzy feeling, this nice feeling I have inside when I'm with someone I care deeply about. I feel fuzzy and warm. Love can't be merely friendships around a coffee or a meal. It can include that, but it can't be merely that. Listen, I just would like to give this simple definition of love for today, just a working definition. Love for one another is having relationships with one another That are based on God's redemptive character. And who is the most redeeming character of his redemptive character? His own son, Jesus. So love is him. Love is rooted in the grace of rescue by Jesus, and he's the one who showed us what love is. So if we think about Jesus, what is love? Love is sacrifice, right? Philippians 2, he he let his own wants go. If there were any wants at all involved in Jesus' love for us, they were his father's wants because he did whatever his father commanded him to do. You realize that? There's any want at all. It wasn't his want. He said, I came to do what my father wanted me to do. So it was about sacrifice. He, He came and empathized and sympathized with us. So love is sympathetic. He humbled himself amidst perfection. So love is humble. His performance was absolutely perfect, eternally so. He came in submission. He came in submission. He followed after all the Father asked him. And he gave his life as a ransom. Love includes laying life down for those whom we are going to care for. I think of Jesus and his empathy and love for us. Again, if there's any feeling at all rooted in Christ, it wasn't what he felt, it was what we felt. He came to know our weakness and our sin and our burden. So his love was about what you feel, not what he felt. Just the opposite of what we we are taught in our world. Think of 1 Corinthians 13. Paul gives a description of love. Maybe you had it read at your wedding. Maybe you know it well. Maybe it's on a sign in your kitchen or something. It's a beautiful description of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrong. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all, ho- all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But the problem is in 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to a church that was horrendously selfish and didn't love each other well at all. And if you remember chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians, what's the last word he says before he starts to describe love? Paul says to the church, can I show you a better way? Can I show you a more excellent way? Because it's not your way. It's Him. It's Him. It's His way of rescue. And so love is Jesus. Love includes Him saying, You're wicked and evil, and I'll lay my life down for you. So love can't just be affirmation. He didn't affirm those who He was offended by, but He loved them. He said, My rescue's for you. Let me ask you, even just my reading that, let's be very reductionistic. As a disciple, are you known by your love? Not by your knowledge. Not by if you have answers in small groups. Not by if people come to you for counsel. Are you known by your love? Period. In your workplace, not because you're the most strategic. Not because you make people feel welcome and laugh. Are you known by your Christ resemblance and love? See, I, I think that most of us should buckle at the knees and say, I'm nothing like that. I get so irritated. I can be so unkind. I don't even know when I'm manipulating to get my way sometimes, and that's scary. I'm nothing like that. And it hurts to think like that. But the good news of the gospel is right here in this this letter. If you're nowhere near the fearer of God that you should be or the lover of others you should be, look at the great news. The new birth of life and love is not a powerless command. It's not your work either. It's the result of the imperishable seed that's been put in you by God's work. The seed is the word of God, the never-stopping, living and abiding word of God. Peter calls it imperishable. All of your life of rescue, all your being born again, all of you being made, remade into the image of God is a result of the work of the imperishable seed that God put in you to grow and grow and grow and never stop growing. So he goes from imperishable inheritance kept in heaven for you to in imperishable seed by God's word put inside of you. And he quotes from Isaiah 40, all flesh is like grass, It's glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The word of the Lord is the opposite of everything that's fading here. I mean, let's just name some things that fade here. Your own physical health fades, does it not? Structures and buildings, they fade. It'll have to be repainted someday. Plans, they come and they go. Wealth fades. Can't take it with you eternally. Blockbuster didn't stay with The Times. They had the chance before Netflix came along. Circuit cities: gone. Maybe this hurts here, it may not. I don't know. Eastman Kodak. Great business book illustration of adaptability. Things fade. If you have the newest iPhone, please, I could use your old earbud jack, because my phone can still use it. You can't use yours anymore. Things become obsolete. They fade. Name anything. Peter's saying, you've got to understand the work of God's Word in you is the opposite of all of that. The word is deep and complex, and I understand that not everybody here feels that reading the Bible is easy. It can be very hard. I understand that. That's why we do it in groups of two, and we do it in small groups. There's the law, the prophets, the promises, the history. But Peter starts to narrow it for us, doesn't he? He says the word is the good news that was preached to you. The word is the gravitational center of all the Bible. The cross and resurrection. Jesus is suffering life and resurrection. His ascension to the Father. His sending of the Spirit. The culminating message of the gospel. That's what I'm talking about, Peter says. And it was declared to you by the preached word. And let me say this. Um, when people come that I, that I know that may visit our church, I'm often like, you know, our church is sometimes a little different. You know, sometimes it, we, we are a little bit liturgical more than people are used to. We'll kneel, don't let it freak you out. We have banjos some Sundays. Um, oh, and by the way, I sometimes preach for 40 minutes. And that last part sometimes feels awkward. I want to just say this. I'm unapologetically convicted that we are called to have a word of God preaching anchored service unashamedly. Because that's what the scriptures say. You heard the word preached to you and it made you live. And then you hear it again and you live. And we're unashamed of that. There's no apologies there. But what's the primary evidence that the word of God has taken hold in your life? Love. Think of the parable of the sower. Not all the word that goes out bears any fruit. Right? Some of it lands on a path and birds snatch it. The hard heart doesn't want to receive it. Or it's received in the rocky ground, but it's just shallow, so any tribulation of life robs the word, takes it away from someone. Or somebody knows the word well, but the thorns of temptation just left to run rampant. Choke out the word, but the word that's planted in good soil will take. And what is the primary evidence the word of God has taken? Fear of God, love of others. That's what Jesus says. It has to go that far. This is what I said two weeks ago. You see grace in the Bible, then you start to experience grace, and you become a community of His grace, communicator of that grace. But if you don't know how to love others with that grace, you may not know His grace. Same message. But Peter's saying to us, do you understand when God does that work in you, it never, ever stops. Ever. So let's be real positive for a second. Do you sense His Word working in you? Do you sense growth if you've been with us even the three years I've been your pastor? Do you sense growth inside of you because there is if you are his? That's what he's saying. It's so ironic this. I mean, this is the beauty of it. What if we blow it and we go 20 steps backwards and you fall off the wagon, if you will, in whatever capacity of your life? Do you realize that if you are born again in Christ and you fall that far back, but you say, Lord, have mercy on me. I didn't think I was capable of it and I ask for you to hold me again, I turn back to you through Jesus and his righteousness alone, and I take one in step forward because I'm just so embarrassed and ashamed, I'm not what people think I am. You take one step forward after all that failure, what are you actually experiencing? Growth. Because you were probably a legalist, a grace abuser, whatever you might have been back when you were mature and you fell hard, but by God's grace, when he calls you back to himself, what is he doing? He's growing you, and it's never going to stop. I'm just so encouraged by this text this week. Three things as we close. I would implore you, believe in God's word, which tells you it's his work. Bible words have Bible meanings. Imperishable means imperishable. Believe the word imperishable means imperishable, please. Let that hold you. Believe in His Word about His work. Secondarily, be in His Word. Be in His Word. With others, if you need help, talk to AJ, talk to myself, talk to one of our elders. We want to help you grow and understand how to read His Word about His authority, His holiness, His story of rescue, His power, His promises that set you free to love. They're not going to constrict you and make you all that you fear you be. No, you're going to look like Him. But then the question is, if you're in His Word, Where are you in his word? Are you in his word and seeing its fruit in your family? Certainly in your church, in your friendships. How about in your workplace? Is your vision of success and maturity in your workplace grounded in the gospel of Jesus? In your management of others? How you handle conflict? Are you finding ways in which the word of God addresses that for you? In your employment? not as a boss, but maybe you're an employee and you come up under others, do you do so as one who can apply God's word to your situation? How about in your hobbies? I, I'm also growing less ashamed of being like a busy guy, because the ways I'm busy are very intentional, I think, and sometimes I feel bad. I've got six children. I try to be involved in my kid's life, but as you know, I spend a lot of time during the week and the evenings coaching kids. And I I'm privileged to know 50 teenage girls in the Tri-Cities between age 13 and 18, and I get to have conversations with them. Last week on Monday night, one of the girls came over to me and said, so Coach Jim, Coach Jim, where does the Bible talk about pride? And another girl came over and stood next to her and said, Yeah, we got a paper and we're supposed to write about pride and its effects. And I said, It's just a water break. I'll talk to you after practice. So at 8 45 at night, we're talking, and I'm thinking, what do I tell him? What do I tell him? I can give him a proverb that pride comes before the fall, but let's just open up Philippians 2 together and talk about how Jesus humbled himself to rescue us and he didn't have to. And pride is the opposite of him. You have to share the God. So in your God will give you opportunities, but in everything you do, ask for his word to bear fruit for you. And then finally, I'm going to close up. Be a visionary. Paint a picture. Ask for God's help to paint a picture in your own life. If you're a vi- so, for the three things: believe in His Word, be in His Word, and be a visionary. What I mean by that is, if you spend your life and you are able to forecast your personal finances or your corporate philosophies, and you've done all that visionary work in those arenas, just take a time out and be visionary in your own spiritual life. When the Word of God says you're going to grow, what will you look like in five years if you're in His Word? Paint a picture. Paint a picture and I guess if we do that and we root that picture in his word we, we come down to a pretty simple answer. Picture the most loving version of yourself who doesn't fly off the rails. Who's not annoyed the way you are right now with people. who Forgives the person you're so ticked at. Who wakes up in the morning and people aren't an interruption to your agenda and just just go on and on. Paint a picture of what a disciple of Jesus looks like with fear and love in the center of it. And I just would propose to you it's not a scary picture of Christian rules and legalism. There's more compassion in all of us if we seek after God's holy law than we can fathom even in our lifetime. Would God do his work among us? Let's pray. Father, hear us now as we pray to you. Make us look like Jesus and thank you for the power of your word. Grow us and never stop growing us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.